Welcome to Redemption Hill. We are going to be continuing in our uh, survey of the New Testament this morning. And uh, before we um, jump in, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we seek to uh, know Him more. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time we're able to gather. Lord, we ask that You would help us to see You more clearly as You've revealed Yourself in Scripture. Help us to respond rightly. Lord, we can't do these things on our own, and so we cast ourselves at your mercy, asking that you would do a work in us to change us, to produce in us a greater love, a greater desire for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. These words must have had a shocking effect on the crowd. If you recall, these were Roman times, and the cross was not um, a popular tattoo or necklace that something either Christians or non-Christians wear as kind of just decoration. Um, No, the cross in Jesus' time was a cruel instrument of state execution, a place where People suffered, they bled, and they died. Here in this verse, Jesus was alerting his followers to a fundamental reality about the Christian life, namely that it involves suffering. Jesus in this verse was making clear that he was on his way to the cross and that if we would be his followers, that we must go that way as well. This is not to say that Christians are to provoke hostility, with needless or unwise actions, but rather in a world that is hostile towards God, that hates God, that is in at enmity with God, it follows that God's people will face persecution. Paul even says it point blank in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's words accurately describe the experience of countless saints throughout church history, and if we would endeavor to pursue a godly life in this world, it will describe ours as well. So why? Why do Christians suffer? How can we endure suffering? And how should Christians in the midst of suffering respond? To answer these questions and others, we'll turn this morning to the book of 1 Peter. If you're not there already, please feel free to flip over. In the book of 1 Peter, um, it deals primarily with suffering, why it occurs, what it's for, and what we're supposed to do when it comes our way. Before we dive in to answer some of these questions, um, let's actually uh, set up some of the background and the outline details. So I didn't know if you noticed this, but there's kind of this trend in the Pauline letters that the title of the letter is written to a church or an individual or a group of people, and we kind of transitioned. That James was kind of our transition in the title of the epistles to actually be the author's name as uh, the title of the letter. So we see that um, as well. If you look at um, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself at the very beginning of the letter as well. Peter is not someone that we've talked a ton about um, so far in the New Testament. We've mentioned him some in the Gospels and in Acts, but it's been a while. So I wanted to review for us who Peter was, what he saw, what he experienced. 
Peter made a living as a fisherman with his brother Andrew and his father Jonas. Andrew actually, his brother, introduced him to Jesus. And when he was introduced to Jesus, Jesus actually changed his name. His birth name was Simon. And Jesus named him Peter, or Cephas, meaning rock. Peter was selected from the multitudes. There was lots of people that were followers of Jesus, but he was selected as part of the 12 that were commissioned to preach and heal the sick. This group was then given the title of apostles, and in all the listings of these apostles, Peter is always named first. The next three years, Peter got to observe the teaching and miracles of Jesus firsthand. He witnessed the water changing into wine. He witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. He witnessed Jesus calming the storm. He was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, to accompany Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was also there at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter is probably famously known for one of his greatest failings, which was to deny the Lord three times, which Jesus predicted, but later he repented. Peter also witnessed Several of Christ's post-resurrection appearings, as well as his ascension into heaven. Not only was he the prominent disciple during Christ's ministry, but he was also the leading apostle in the early church. We see that in Acts. He was a chief spokesman at Pentecost and primarily ministered to the Jews in the Palestine region. He was sent to be a pastor, a preacher of the gospel to the Jews, He made major contributions at the Council of Jerusalem regarding Gentile salvation as well, as we see in Acts 15. And then from there, he kind of falls off the map. We don't really see him mentioned. We don't have a record from our Bible, at least, as to what um, he did from there. So there's no real question in regards to the letter of 1 Peter that um, Peter was the author. Um, Very, from easy textual analysis, you can see the stuff that he mentions here really matches up well with what Luke recorded that Peter actually preached in the book of Acts. Um, And there's not been any historical question about that. Um, Early church fathers recognized this as Peter's writing, even though there was lots of letters being circulated under that name. Um, This one clearly stood out as something that the church saw as authoritative and was uh, was written by Peter. So not only do we have in verse 1, we have the author, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, but we also have, also have the audience. The audience. If you look with me at the second half of verse 1, it says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he was writing to a group of believers um, in the region we know now as modern-day Turkey. Likely this this. A body of believers over a large region were mixed with both Gentiles and Jews. He calls them exiles. He mentions them to be sojourners or foreigners or strangers in a land. But he also calls them elect, chosen by God. These people were experiencing a great amount of suffering, but it's not just worldly suffering or circumstantial suffering. The suffering Peter addresses in this letter is specific to suffering because of Christ. Because of trusting in Christ and surrendering your life to him, that is the the type of suffering that these people were experiencing. They experienced property loss, loss of jobs, could be food or money. 
There was loss of social status. Um, to, to surrender to Christ could be that you were going to be cast out of your own family, your own home. Lots of what Peter mentions in this letter is regarding to slandering or mocking or ridicule. The early church from Acts in this book as well record that there were accusations commonly known in this day and age that were hoisted against Christians during this time. Some of them being terrorism, atheism, because they didn't worship idols and gods. They thought that they were atheists. Doesn't make sense, but that's what they accused them of, right? Cannibalism. A lot of these things were twisted, right? They would think of communion as cannibalism. Or immorality. Oftentimes, um, they were seen as those who damaged trade and social progress. They were a hindrance to society as it was. They were not appreciated. They weren't just absorbed in the community. This is very different from how we in Western culture in America relate to Christianity. You know, I can walk around and be a Christian and nobody's really slandering me for it. Maybe if I'm witnessing to somebody, I might get some kickback. But this was a very different time of what these believers were experiencing and going through. Somehow, Peter had heard about the difficulty and the persecution of these fellow believers and became burdened for them, burdened enough to accept the Spirit-given responsibility to encourage them in this letter. In regards to when it was written, it was written around 63 AD. Um, The time is actually um, pretty significant. Um, There was a big historical event. Nero was um, Caesar at... Uh, Rome, and there was this burning that happened in Rome that the whole town burned down, and it was a huge, devastating event. And history tells us that it was actually Nero who did it, but because people were so enraged and mad about it, um, he actually had to find a scapegoat, and he blamed Christians. So this is actually just before that. It's right before that event happens. That's around um, mid-64 AD, and around 63 AD is when this letter was written. So this letter was not penned to Christians experiencing the threat of imprisonment or death. That was to come later. Instead, the persecution of these believers were facing was more of the type of family and friends and even strangers that would mock them for their hope in Christ. The date of the book is important to understand because it means that the letter was not only a comfort to Christians that were in the midst of suffering, whether it be social or economic, but that it was also helping to prepare its readers for Harsher forms of persecution that were to come. So now that we've laid out some of the uh, details of who wrote the letter, who it was to, and when it was written, um, let's talk about the purpose and the outline to kind of get a lay of the land. And then uh, once we get there, we'll dive into some of the themes and actually be um, diving into several texts in First Peter. So purpose. Why did Peter write to these people? You know, contrary to a lot of the letters that we've read and been through and studied, a lot of those were written about heresies and issues theologically that were coming up. Um, Peter wasn't addressing a specific heresy as much as he was writing to comfort and refresh believers who were suffering for Christ. Peter was writing to believers who were confused. They were scared and discouraged by persecutions that were coming as a direct result of their faith. With pastoral care, Peter addresses them with both Christ-centered encouragement and Christ-centered imperatives. And this is really 
Um, another unique distinction between this letter and a lot of the Pauline epistles is Paul was very, um, you can almost have a dividing line in his letter of when he was um, speaking about the encouragement or the doctrine, and then he would go around to the duty, the, what we're supposed to do with this truth. But Peter kind of intertwines these throughout the letter. He'll tell you, this is how you should be encouraged. This is truth that we need to trust in and believe. And then right after, he says, do, do, do. So he's got, you know, the holster guns with the pistols, and he's doing single rounds and switching which gun he's going with, whereas Paul's just got a cannon on each side. And he's like, poof, poof, done, you know, and lays it all out. It was important um, for us to notate this because he, he categorizes encouragement specifically with future hope. He wants to draw the attention of these believers to a future event. And also in the imperatives, it's important for us to notice that he wants them to pursue. He wants them to pursue holiness and humility. By blending these encouragements and imperatives together, 1 Peter offers an amazing arsenal of comfort for believers who are to suffer for Christ. Let's look briefly at the outline. The outline of 1 Peter kind of breaks up into four sections. And uh, the first section is the introduction. So verse 1 we've already covered is kind of the introduction that lays out who wrote it, who's receiving it. But it actually has kind of a key ingredient to understanding the layout of the letter. Um, He calls them elect exiles, as we've mentioned. Those who are chosen yet estranged from the world. They're aliens. They're strangers to this world. It's kind of a a contradiction almost in a sense when you read it. It sounds opposites being paired together. But he actually uses this intentionally to kind of structure his letter. Um, the first section that he actually dives into is to talk about election, to talk about salvation, to talk about the destiny of a believer. And that's in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10. And then he transitions to the second half, not only talking about Um, the benefits and demands of being God's chosen people in section 1. But in section 2, he talks about the duty of the believer, that we are to submit to authority, that we are strangers in this world, and our authority is outside of this world. We submit to him, and that looks like submitting to the authorities that God has placed, as we'll talk about today. One um, New Testament theologian said it this way, They were to live a lifestyle different from, yet attractive to, the hostile world in which we live. Very succinctly said and very difficultly lived. But it's true. That's our calling. We are called to fulfill our responsibilities as workers, as citizens, and as spouses. And in the last section um, of the outline, chapter 4, verse 12, through um, chapter 5, verse 14, he lays out for us more um, an encouragement and instruction to endure, what it looks like as an elect exile in this world, practically, that we are to be um, suffering for Christ, and what that looks like, how to respond to suffering, that we are to endure according to the will of God, and trusting our lives and circumstances to God. And then at the very end, he closes with an urgent exhortation to stand firm that we'll look at as well. Now that we've laid out some of the um, groundwork, the foundation, um, hopefully 
you'll have a context in your mind for Peter, what he experienced, the audience, what they're going through, and be able to see what encouragement Peter is, is seeking to direct their focus toward. So if you'll look with me um, in First Peter, we're going to first look at um, a couple different themes. Three themes um, that hopefully will capture our attention this morning is, as Peter's goal was for these churches in Turkey. But the way we're going to address these themes this morning are actually those questions we mentioned earlier. Why do we suffer? How do we endure suffering? And how should we respond to suffering? So, three H's on the board. Try to make it easy to understand, alliterative. But it's really important that we remember these truths. Paul want, Peter wanted, rather, to encourage these believers to have hope, to pursue holiness, and to live in humility. So why do we suffer? Well, I think Peter actually draws our attention to two ways, two um, reasons, rather, why we suffer. And the first, um, he probably got directly from Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's this idea of choosing, of being set apart, of being holy. That's the really what's been amazing to me in reading through the letters, understanding that God's salvation is why we are persecuted. Do you understand that? Like, that's a key ingredient, right? That's why we actually practically are a part of suffering. We are elect. We are set apart. We're distinct from the world. Christianity is not meant to look like everything around us. We're meant to be distinct. And when we blend in with the world and we don't experience suffering, we're not identifying with Christ. We're not following Christ. It's important for us to look distinct. If you flip with me to chapter 4, this is where he um, explicitly makes this clear. In chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what's the result? And they malign you. Because we don't approve of sin. Because once you're saved, there's a new authority in your life. I have a new calling, new desires. I'm not going to live like the rest of the world anymore. That's why, one aspect of why, why we experience suffering. is because we're different. And when you live in a way that tells the world there's a different way to live than the sin that they want approval from, they want others to approve of their sin, as Romans 1 talks about, they're, gonna, they're going to malign you. They're going to mock you. They're going to scorn you. Because that is their conscience being pricked. That's the spirit at work saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is broken, but you want approval of it. So why do we suffer? It's because we're called to be holy. We are called to be holy and set apart. Second aspect of why we suffer is that we're called to participate in it. We're called to participate in suffering. One of the observations um, 
of 1 Peter is an aspect or a theme that we haven't really talked about yet in our survey, but this theme of um, suffering and then glory or humiliation and then exaltation. You can refer to this maybe as um, a divine order of operations. This is the order in which God works. We can see this um, even in Old Testament reference. Peter draws it out in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who promised, or excuse me, promised prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit excuse me, of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Old Testament is full of this side-by-side juxtaposition of a reigning Messiah, a reigning king, and a suffering king. Why would, why would these be side-by-side? And the prophets searched and they inquired and We're trying to figure out for us, he says in this text, how this worked out. So we see this in the Old Testament, if you remember through our survey, but we see explicitly in chapter 3 what he's talking about. Chapter 3, verses 18, we see the actual example, the breakdown of um, one of the times when he talks about the salvation that we've received through Christ. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the first aspect of Jesus' coming. His first coming was to be a suffering servant. If you look down a little further, he references another Old Testament event in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's the exaltation of Christ. And to explain just briefly in this passage, because I know this is one of the difficult passages and I wanted to touch on. The key here is in, 19, in verse 18, he actually says, that he might bring us to God. There's a transportation piece in here. And that's what he's paralleling with the ark in times of Noah. He's saying the ark is that transportation vehicle, just like Jesus Christ is our transportation vehicle. Water in the event of Noah was actually judgment. And because Christ received the judgment of God, the wrath of God, We appeal to God to say, we have been identified with the death and burial of Jesus Christ in baptism. And we are raised again, just as Christ was. That's how we identify with Christ. And we appeal to God with a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to catch that this is is how God has designed it from the beginning. This is how God has designed it. He's designed it for Christ to suffer once for sin, and then to be exalted and glorified. And that model is is an example for us. Paul sees this example of Christ's suffering as unique, as something that is um, distinct, different from how we suffer, right? We're not atoning for sin. We're not receiving glory, but as we suffer with Christ, we too will receive greater joy, 
If you look with me in chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. We'll be flipping through frequently. In chapter 2, verses 20, it says, For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We are called to participate, and Peter just hammers in on this, and just quickly we're going to run through these verses because it's such an important theme for us to identify with Christ as our example. In chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the difficult suffering part, but there's also this idea of future honor and glory that will be given to God because of it, if we endure. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he brings it up again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Again, we're called to suffering. And because we are holy, we are going to suffer. So it shouldn't be a shock to us that this comes up. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far that you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's joy in suffering. Jesus talked about it in the Beatitudes. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 5. And James talks about it in the book we just looked at. Count it all joy when you go into trials, when you're, te- when you're tested. And Peter wants to hammer in on this idea again and again because this is what they're going through. They need to be exhorted, encouraged in Scripture of what we're supposed to do. And this joy is not um, just saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smile even though it's painful right now. You know, or I'm going to just, I'm going to try to minimize the difficulty of the situation I'm dealing with. No, it's a joy that's rooted in eschatological, a future event, right? (laughs) Something that's going to happen in the future. That's the perspective that produces this sort of joy. And then um, in chapter 5, verse 6, he says it again, the example of humility and exaltation. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's Christ's example for us. It's the divine order of operations of how the Christian's life is supposed to be lived. And we see it modeled even in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about it as well, that he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, right? The joy that was set before him. So with this in mind, um, we, we recognize that our suffering in this life as, as Christians has a purpose, It's not meaningless. And just as Christ's sufferings made more glorious his victory over sin, our suffering will result in all the more joy 
when we are finally vindicated, which Peter talks about as well. Chapter 4, verse 5. Verse 5 says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is a good judge. He will judge sin. There will be vindication. That is hope for us. But not only do we want to look at why we're called to suffering as those who are holy and set apart, as those who are called to, to follow the example of Christ, to participate in suffering for the glory of God. But we also want to know, how do we practically endure suffering? Honestly, in preparing for the lesson, it was difficult to think about, in our context, the real type of suffering that's happening to this audience. Um, I was studying in a basement, and I got chilly, and I went and got my warm, fuzzy blanket. Right? I mean, I... I I, I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't have the same context and experience, but God's word is still true, right? I don't have to have personally experienced it, but I want to be almost shaking the armor, right? I want to shake the armor today. I want to hit it with a sword. I want to make sure it's on so that when suffering comes, we're prepared. We're not ill-equipped. We'll know where to turn to remind us. And we'll have our armor on to to face and endure suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. So how do we suffer? Peter's clear calling on the believer is to have hope. To have hope. Hope is something that we often get confused with faith. If you look in chapter 1, he actually uses these um, terms together. He talks about being born again to a living hope. And then he talks about being guarded by God's power through faith and that the tested genuineness of your faith is precious, that it may result in salvation. And then again, he comes back in verse 13 to talk about set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we say we need to um, have faith or we we should hope in something, hope in God. It's important for us to recognize a little bit of the differences, so I'm going to take just a minute to to lay that out. Faith is rooted in understanding. Faith looks at the promises. Hope is rooted in the will. So, for example, purchase contracts. If you've ever bought a house or thought about buying a house, it's a contract. It doesn't happen instantly. You have an agreement, right? Faith is looking at that purchase contract and saying, man, we've made all these agreements, we've kept our end of the bargain, this is exciting. This is um, something I'm, I'm, I'm confident in because there's a contractual agreement. But hope says, I want that house. I'm looking at the house, right? I'm not, I'm not looking at the promises with hope. With hope, I'm looking at the house. I want to be in the house. I want my kids to be in the house. I want to paint the house the color that we wanted to paint. I mean, work projects. But that's what hope does. It's, it's looking to something. It's clinging to something. It's saying, I want that. God's going to fulfill his promises. My faith is in the promises of God, but my hope is in what God is delivering, which is eternal life. We have a living hope. So many times, Peter in this letter wants to draw his audience's attentions to the focus that God will bring you home. He will bring you home. 
three times in just the first 13 verses. He says, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then again in verse 7, he says, that um, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, he says it again. Setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only at the beginning of the letter, but at the end, he bookends it again. He says, this ought to be our drive, our focus, our desire to set our hope on this future fulfillment of salvation, the consummation of it. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 6 and 10, he brings up this idea again of our, our hope being satisfied, our hope being set and fixed on a future event that Jesus is coming again. There will be vindication. That is hope for us. And I, my, my desire for us to, this morning is to ask ourselves, what is your hope in? What is your hope in? Because when suffering comes, it's pretty late to shift that hope. And it'll be much more difficult. Is your hope in your career, your job? Is your hope in a relationship? It's important for us to have our hope fixed in what is eternal and what is promised in God's word for us. So that when suffering comes for a believer, we will have the ability to endure to persevere. Thirdly, the last question I wanted to cover this morning was how should we respond to suffering? And the answer is humility, but humility doesn't necessarily give us the details. He models humility for us in this letter of what that looks like. So he actually gives us three ways that humility is evidenced in our lives, that we are submitted to God's authority. The first way that we can respond to suffering is that we are called to be a witness. We're called to be a witness. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, for this purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our job in suffering is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Again, in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the day of visitation. Do you know that your suffering is meant to be a witness to this world? Have you thought about that? Most times when we're enduring suffering, we think about ourselves, for being honest. That's not what Peter encourages these believers with. He says, your suffering is meant to glorify God in this way. That you should be a witness to those that are lost. To say, something's different. That's not how I would respond. If somebody got in my face, I'm going to smack them back. We're called to be witnesses. So we need to be prepared. How, how would you treat those who would mock us? It's important for us to be 
prepared on that response, to be equipped with scripture to say, I'm going to respond as Jesus did. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. But he submitted himself to the authority of God, knowing that God is just and he will vindicate. That's what Peter talks about in this letter. Secondly, another aspect of humility is that we're called to love one another. We're called to love one another. For being honest, when we're dealing with stress or suffering or persecution and difficulty, it's easy for us to lash out. It's easy for us to not want to receive instruction or correction. Like, don't you know what I'm going through? This is really hard. It's difficult. It's being squeezed, right? And so sometimes the ones closest to us, fellow believers even, are the ones that we ridicule back. We lash out against them because we can't lash out against the unbeliever. We need to be a witness to them. That's not what Peter instructs these people to do. He instructs them to love one another. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be, so, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When you're in hot water situations, how do you treat your brother in Christ? It's important that we have a, a hope that is fixed in the future and a posture of humility. Say, I want to pursue holiness, and I want to evidence that in humility. To say, I'm going to be receptive to instruction. I'm going to lean in to the church because that's a resource for me. That's a help to me, an encouragement to me, even when it's painful. And I want to love the brethren. Thirdly, another aspect of humility that Peter brings up is that we're called to submit to authority. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 13. And this, I think, is, is very practical. It's a big part of the middle chunk of this letter that he spends on um, submission to authority. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be as to the emperor or as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Over and over again, he emphasizes this idea of submission, submission to authorities, to um, both civil authorities and to husbands and to masters and to elders and to one another. Submission is really, really important because it's fitting of Christians because it displays our hope and trust is in a higher authority. It enhances our witness about God. These three are interwoven. That's why we title it humility, because humility is going to be evidenced in witnessing to others, loving one another, and submitting to authority. One of the verses that came to mind when studying through the idea of submission was, um, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think a lot of times I get that wrong. I think I want to seek mercy but love my justice and walk as if I'm God. Submission attacks the pride that lingers in our heart to say, well, this isn't just. That's not right. Are we willing to follow the instruction of Scripture 
to submit to the authorities and say, this is what God has put in place. Whether it's in the White House or in your workplace or in your home. As Christians, we can submit, even if we are persecuted for our faith by the people in authority over us. Because we know that Christ, the ultimate authority, who was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God, will have the final word. In closing, um, I just wanted to mention that Peter actually wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he also submitted to these truths personally in his own life. He was called to live this out in a very real way. Um, Church tradition states that Peter actually witnessed his own wife be crucified. And you know what he said to his wife? He said, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. That's, That's what he wants to communicate to these people is rest, remember, for there's a rescue coming. The Lord is coming again. Remember our Lord. Peter actually closes the letter in chapter 5 with this exhortation. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By God's grace, may we too fasten our hearts and minds to Christ as we endure suffering to the glory of our Heavenly Father.